This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is RCT number 22, Reasons Why Christ Suffered. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent. Today we are on pages 57 to 61. This is the Creed, Article 4, Part C. God give you his peace, in nomine Patris Afidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. O heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us of all impurity and save our souls, O good one. In nomine Patris Afidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. The Catechism again. Useful Considerations on the Passion When the faithful have once attained the knowledge of these things, the pastor should next proceed to explain those particulars of the passion and death of Christ, which may enable them, if not to comprehend, at least to contemplate the immensity of so stupendous a mystery. The Dignity of the Sufferer And first we must consider who it is that suffers all these things. His dignity we cannot express in words or even conceive in mind. Of him, St. John says that he is the word which was with God, John 1.1. And the apostle describes him in sublime terms, saying that this is he whom God hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the figure of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, making purgation of sins, sitteth on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, verses 2-3. to three. In a word, Jesus Christ, the God-man, suffers. The Creator suffers for His creatures, the Master for His servant. He suffers by whom the angels, men, the heavens, and the elements were made, in whom, by whom, and of whom are all things. Romans eleven thirty six. It cannot therefore be a matter of surprise that while he agonized under such an accumulation of torments, the whole frame of the universe was convulsed. For as the scriptures inform us, the earth quaked, and the rocks were rent, there was darkness over all the earth, and the sun was obscured. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, and Luke twenty-three forty-four. If then even mute and inanimate nature sympathized with the sufferings of her Creator, let the faithful consider with what tears they, the living stones of this edifice, should manifest their sorrow. And me again here, there's something in theology called the primacy of Christ. It's actually kind of an old debate from the Middle Ages, and it goes like this. If man had not sinned, would the second person of the Trinity still have become man? If man hadn't fallen, would the incarnation still take place? Now the Dominican answer about 800 years ago is no, Christ only came to make reparation for our sins. But the Franciscan answer that I agree with is, yes, God still would have become man. He still would have come to earth, even if man had never fallen. Why? Because Christ is the center of all creation. Now, there's a lot of reasons, even patristic reasons, why we could prove that this is the case. One of the, uh, maybe not the most important reason by any means, but if you look in Mystical City of God by uh, Blessed Mary of Agreda, you can see even before time, there's this conversation between Lucifer and God. This is before Satan fell. 
Lucifer is given a vision be through time or before time. I don't know exactly how angels exist, if it's the same um, eternity that God himself is in. But Lucifer is given a preview of the greatness of Mary, that this would be a creature even greater than him. And keep in mind, this is before Lucifer's fall. And as he's given this vision that another creature will have the hypostatic union of God and man in her, he demands, Lucifer demands, if there's going to be a hypostatic union, it must be in me. And he falls in rebellion to Christ, but especially in rebellion to Mary, this preview that he's given. But here's my argument. If Lucifer hadn't been given a preview already, if Lucifer hadn't been given this preview even before he had fallen, then how in the world would God have already decided to become man even before there was sin in the universe, even before there was sin in the rebellion in heaven, and even before that had trickled down to tempting Adam and Eve many uh, eons or whatever moments the angels exist in happened later as the fallen Satan then approached Adam and Eve. So right there in the mystical city of God, it seems very clear that um, the incarnation was going to happen even before Lucifer fell, upon which is contingent Adam and Eve's fall. So those of us who hold to the primacy of Christ believe that Jesus would have become incarnate even if Adam and Eve had not sinned. That's what I believe that Jesus would have become, would have become incarnate even if Adam and Eve had not sinned. But even those Franciscans and me who do believe in the primacy of Christ, we do not believe Christ would have suffered if man had not fallen. Now, think about that. Here we have the incarnation and the suffering of Jesus. He didn't have to do either of those for us. But when we look at our sin, that's that much more astounding that he would go through that for us. You've probably heard my analogy before, but imagine in the Middle Ages, and I put this little analogy in the Middle Ages because dignity and honor was a little bit more important back then because we're going to talk in a second about the dignity of, say, a medieval pope or a medieval king. But imagine this. Imagine, I don't know, 13th century France, a guy punches his brother's dog in the face. What's he going to have to do to make up or repair that relationship with his brother or that brother's dog? Maybe he's going to give the medieval equivalent of a dog treat to that, uh, to that dog in 13th century France. Now, what if in the 13th century France, a man punches his brother in the face? These are two adult men. You know, maybe he's, he should give him a good bottle of wine or, um, I don't know, work on the field for him for a morning or, or a day, something like that. What if, what if he punches his wife in the face or his, his brother's wife in the face? Well, maybe he should go work in the field for her for a whole month to make some reparation. Even if he apologized, even if he went to confession, there's still some level of having to repair, that's the, the root word of our word reparation, for what he's done. Okay, but what if this, this same man came up to, say, the king of France and punched the king of France in the face? There was probably a death penalty involved back then, but let's say it was King St. Louis IX, a great king, and he let him off. This, this man would probably still want to go to confession, probably still tell good King St. Louis that he was sorry, and then he might want to do like five or ten years of work in reparation for attacking the king. Okay, but then, so you probably see where this is going as far as these dignity scales. What happens if you hit... God in the face. How, how do we make any reparation for that level of majesty? But you see, that's what we do. You or me, now we're in the 21st century, this is what you or I do 
every time we sin is we punch God in the face. So the question is, what can we do to make reparation repair an infinite offense against an infinitely good God who is, a, who is of infinite majesty? Well, it would take the repair or reparation to be considered infinite. But how can you or me make infinite reparation as finite beings? Well, we can't because we're not God. But then here's another problem. Man's sins are in the flesh. How in the world could God, even if he wanted to, even if he wanted to be merciful enough, how could God who has no physical body make reparation for physical sins? Well, he couldn't unless he became God incarnate, unless he became God-man. And so now you're probably starting to see why the blood of Jesus Christ had to be both boundless and blameless and physical to make reparation for your sins and mine to an infinitely good God. And so this is why Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, this is why his suffering is stupendous, like the Catechism said today. Quote, that while he agonized under such an accumulation of torments, the whole frame of the universe was convulsed. For as the scriptures inform us, the earth quaked and the rocks were rent. There was darkness over all the earth and the sun was obscured, end quote. And that was quoting Matthew 27 and Luke 23. The Catechism again, reasons why Christ suffered. The reasons why the Savior suffered are also to be explained that thus the greatness and intensity of the divine love toward us made them more fully appear. Should anyone inquire why the Son of God underwent his most bitter passion, he will find that besides the guilt inherited from our first parents, the principal causes were the vices and crimes which had been perpetrated from the beginning of the world of the present day and those which will be committed to the end of time. In his passion and death, the Son of God, our Savior, intended to atone for and blot out the sins of all ages, to offer for them to his Father a full and abundant satisfaction. Besides, to increase the dignity of this mystery, Christ not only suffered for sinners, but even for those who were the very authors and ministers of all the torments he endured. Of this, the Apostle reminds us in these words addressed to the Hebrews, Think diligently upon him that endured such opposition from sinners against himself, that you be not wearied, fainting in your minds. Hebrews 12, 3. In this guilt are involved all those who fall frequently into sin. For as our sins consign Christ the Lord to the death of the cross, most certainly those who wallow in sin and, and iniquity crucify to themselves again the Son of God, as far as in them lies, and makes a mockery of him. Hebrews 6, 6. This guilt seems more enormous in us than in the Jews, since according to the testimony of the same apostle, if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 While we, on the contrary, professing to know him, yet denying by our actions, seem in some sort to lay violent hands on him. Me again. So notice today many traditional Catholics love to remind the Jews on social media that they crucified Christ. Fine. But did you just hear the catechism? It reads, As our sins, it's talking about us Catholics, as our sins, the sins of us Catholics, consign Christ the Lord to the death of the cross, most certainly those who wallow in sin and iniquity crucify themselves again the Son of God as far as in them lies and make a mockery of him. This guilt seems more enormous in us than in the Jews, since according to the testimony of the same apostle, if they had known it, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. 
So in other words, the Jews didn't know they crucified God, but Catholics today know that they re-crucify Christ, falling back into mortal sin, and do it anyway. And then they just go back to confession, this cycle of hopscotching in and out of grace that's right from the scriptures, that we re-crucify Christ by our sins anew, Hebrews 6.6, and as the Catechism said, denying him by our actions, and in some way seem to lay violent hands on him. The Catechism again, Christ was delivered over to death by the Father and by himself. But the Christ the Lord was also delivered over to death by the Father and by himself, the scriptures bear witness. For in Isaiah, God the Father says, For the wickedness of my people have I struck him. Isaiah 53.8 And a little before, the same prophet, filled with the Spirit of God, cried out, As he saw the Lord covered with stripes and wounds, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone hath turned aside to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. But of the Son it is written, If he shall lay down his life for sin, he shall see a long-lived seed. Isaiah 53:10. This the Apostle expresses in language still stronger when, in order to show how confidently we on our part should trust in the boundless mercy and goodness of God, he says, He that spared not even his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how hath he not also with him given us all things? Romans 8.32 Me again. Now notice that this catechism was written at the time of the Protestant revolt in the 16th century. And of course, John Calvin, that, that heretic of the 16th century, one of the first Protestants, he taught that at the Passion, God the Father took out all of his anger on Jesus. Now we see a little nod in this direction from the inspired word of God right there because it says, God the Father says, for the wickedness of my people have I struck him. This is speaking of Christ. Now, I personally believe the center of that error of only ascribing that to God the Father, not God the Son, is that really Protestants barely believe in the divinity of Christ. That's why they even today say weird things like God and Christ, as if Christ isn't God. <laughs> of course, Christ is God. But the Catechism today maintains that Jesus was handed over to death by who? Well, at the human level, Christ was handed over to death by the Jews to the Romans. But catch this, everybody. At the permissive will of God, it was God the Father and God the Son. That's so key to differentiate us from Calvinism, who just has like this innocent son and really angry father. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. I should say all three persons of the Trinity handed over Jesus for the salvation of mankind. And that's why Jesus says in John 10, 18, No man taketh my life away from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment I have received of my Father. So notice the eternal word, God the Son, that is Jesus Christ, handed over Jesus Christ to die for mankind. Just as God the Father handed over Jesus, just as God the Son just as God the Holy Spirit handed over Jesus. But there's not this weird differentiation between the emotions of God the Father and God the Son, a la Cal Calvinism. And this is why we don't just say the Father raised Jesus from the dead, but that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and God the Son raised Jesus from the dead, and God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, simultaneously raising Christ from the dead. And because Christ is God, that is why the early councils infallibly state that Christ raised himself from the dead. So in other words, John Calvin sidelines true Trinitarian theology and 
must just be bringing his own daddy issues to the whole scheme of things. But again, the catechism is really clear. As it said, Christ was delivered over to death by the Father and by himself. The catechism again, the bitterness of Christ's passion. The next subject of the pastor's instruction is the bitterness of the Redeemer's passion. If we bear in mind that his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground, Luke 22:44, and this at the sole anticipation of the torments and agony which he was about to endure, we must at once perceive that his sorrows admitted of no increase. In other words, they couldn't be increased. For if the very idea of impending evils was overwhelming and the sweat of blood shows that it was, what are we to suppose their actual endurance to have been? That Christ our Lord suffered the most excruciating torments of mind and body is certain. Me again. Remember from, from an earlier time in this podcast, I mentioned that if only infinite love could make reparation for an offense against an infinite majesty, then this reparation would also have to be infinite. But how could there be infinite suffering if man's sufferings, even the worst, are always limited? Well, Christ would have to either decree or allow from all of eternity a suffering upon him, maybe not infinite, but most closely commensurate to infinite, to that which would be the worst suffering possible on earth, which St. Thomas Aquinas says was a Roman crucifixion. The Catechism continues, In the first place, there was no part of his body that did not experience the most agonizing torture. His hands and feet were fastened with nails to the cross. His head was pierced with thorns and smitten with a reed. His face was befouled with spittle and buffeted with blows. His whole body was covered with stripes. Furthermore, men of all ranks and conditions were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. See Psalm 2. Me again. You know, I had a professor in seminary who said, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, it was just done for shock value and it was overdone. History really wasn't like that. No, that's totally false. If you read Blessed Catherine Emmerich's vision of what happened to Jesus, then you will see that Mel Gibson made his torture exponentially more tame than what really happened in real life. Let me say that again. The movie The Passion of the Christ is much less violent than the book on private revelation of Jesus' sufferings by Blessed Catherine Emmerich. We really, you and me today, we cannot imagine the physical pain and that sense in Jesus' soul being forsaken and what he went through in Calvary. Probably the closest we can get is to look at Blessed Catherine Emmerich's book on the Passion of Jesus, but even Mel Gibson's excellent movie, which I love, really doesn't even make it as bad as what we can read in that book. The Catechism again. Gentiles and Jews were the advisors, the authors, the ministers of his Passion. Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, all the rest deserted him. And while he hangs from the cross, are we not at a loss which to deplore his agony or his ignominy or both? Surely no death more shameful, none more cruel, could have been devised than this. It was the punishment usually reserved for the most guilty and atrocious malefactors, a death whose slowness aggravated the exquisite pain and torture. Christ's agony was increased by the very constitution and frame of his body. Formed by the power of the Holy Ghost, it was more perfect and better organized than the bodies of other men can be, and was therefore endowed with a superior susceptibility and a keener sense of all the torments which it endured. Me again? As I've said before, too many Catholics today look at Jesus on the cross and say, 
uh, he could have done it because he was God. I don't mean they would physically say that out loud in a church, but I think a lot of us, including me, have that temptation to look at the crucifixion and say, well, he was God after all. But, and that is true, but the church has always taught, including the fathers and St. Thomas Aquinas and the catechism today, that Jesus' pain was much greater than an average crucifixion in those days for several reasons. One, because the torturers were mysteriously rougher with him because of the demons egging them on. Two, because Christ was answering for all the sins of the world, therefore there was something commensurate or proportional, proportionate in his soul to all the countless sins against the triune majesty that had ever been committed, were being committed that day, especially there on Calvary, and any time in the future. And thirdly, because Jesus' body, because it was made by the Holy Spirit and the Blessed Virgin Mary, not a normal union of man and, and, and woman, because it was the Holy Spirit and the Blessed Virgin Mary that made the body of Jesus, then we know that his body was more perfect and therefore more sensitive, not less sensitive. Now, that doesn't mean he was weaker than the average man of his day. Christ was probably stronger than the average man of his day. But he was exponentially more sensitive in his nerve endings because of what the Catechism just told us today. Listen again. Formed by the power of the Holy Ghost, it was more perfect. That means his body. His body was more perfect and better organized than the bodies of other men can be and was therefore endowed with a superior susceptibility and a keener sense of all the torments which he endured. The Catechism again, and as to his interior anguish of soul, that too was no doubt extreme. For those among the saints who had to endure torments and tortures were not without consolation from above, which enabled them not only to bear their sufferings patiently, but in many instances to feel in the very midst of them filled with interior joy. I rejoice, says the Apostle, in my sufferings for you and fill up those things that are wanting in the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church, Colossians 1.24, and in another place, I am filled with comfort, I exceedingly abound with joy in all our tribulations, 2 Corinthians 7.4. Christ our Lord, tempered with no mixture of sweetness in the bitter chalice of his passion, but permitted his human nature to feel acutely every species of torment as if he were only man and not also God. Me again, last section. So this is something I suspected for a long time, actually, but I could never prove until today reading the Catechism. You know, why would someone like St. Lawrence make a joke about his suffering? You know, the account from church history, St. Lawrence is being grilled alive, and then he says, turn me over, I'm done on this side. Okay, most Catholics know that story. They kind of think it's funny. It is kind of funny, actually, the fact that um, he could care that little about his body because he knew he was getting it back. And I think too many Catholics today think maybe God dulled his pain nerves at that time. That's not true. St. Lawrence really did feel being burned to death, but he was simultaneously filled with what the Catechism just called interior joy, even exceeding joy. So yeah, the suffering was immense that Lawrence went through, but at the affective level, the level of supernatural charity in his heart was so great that it overflowed to be able to endure that. Now, of course, Christ also had infinite, or I shouldn't say also, Christ had infinite supernatural charity where St. Lawrence only had a participation in that. So why did we just read that in the Catechism? Well, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Could Jesus have given himself that affective consolation at the Passion? Could he have given that from his divinity to his own created human soul? Not just the charity that was already there, but that, that subjective side of interior joy. 
Well, of course he could have done that. But here's the thing. This is what the catechism is saying. He chose not to. What do I mean? Well, the catechism just told us, Christ our Lord tempered with no mixture of sweetness in the bitter chalice of his passion, but permitted his human nature to feel acutely every species of torment. So he didn't even fill himself with that affective uh, ability that many of the saints and martyrs had at their sufferings to be filled with this tremendous interior joy, um, partly because they knew they were attaining heaven, where Christ, I believe, was because he was answering for all the sins of all of time, his soul was crushed in a way that the martyrs were not. Even in, even in sufferings that may have been physically close to Jesus's, the martyrs never had the weight upon their soul of all the sins of all of humanity. Because Jesus could see every sin that had ever been committed, was being committed that day, and ever will be committed, especially by Catholics, especially by priests and nuns, all weighing on his soul. St. Lawrence didn't have that weighing on his soul. Um, but even that Jesus took on so great is his love for us. What a tremendous and loving Savior we have. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Santi, descended super vos et maniat semper. Amen.